Hello and welcome to episode 130 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. And I'm Marco. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And uh, we have got some great past guests, obviously. Uh, This week's guest is a crime writer and we've had some amazing crime writers on the podcast. Peter James, Ian Rankin, uh, Tarakash Kanani. Ah, just one of the uh, many rising stars of the literary world. <laughs> Chris Whitaker and many, many more. So, yeah, please do check out the back catalogue. And if you enjoy this episode of the podcast or if you've listened to other episodes and aren't yet following or subscribed to us, please do that. And please also give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is because that helps a lot. Are you sounding a bit choked up there, Marco? Yeah. Got COVID? Not covid according to the many tests i've taken but uh, <laughs> so i'm still uh covid free amazingly but um no you've it's never your family your entire immediate family said covid you've never caught it once i am be... not patient zero what is it the, i'm the cure they'll need to harvest yeah, my body just, exactly they need to test your blood yeah, your 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 life you're gonna live in some kind of vacuum sealed chamber <laughs> just giving liquid to everyone <laughs> I mean that, that sounds, sounds a bit <laughs> I'm sorry this is your life now Marco so, so the rest of the okay, world can live quickly let's move on quickly let's move on and talk about this week's guest who this is another guest. great guest and as I said yeah. from the world of crime writing yeah this week we're chatting with Gordon Brown no not that Gordon Brown Gordon J Brown who is a prolific crime writer although before he started writing books he uh, it's got quite an interesting number of jobs he's done he's floated a high-tech company on the london stock exchange uh um sold non-alcoholic beer in the middle east uh, very yeah. interesting uh, but but his, his his crime books are are also fantastic and his latest is six wounds which is written under his um alias morgan cry and it's a spanish set expat thriller yeah interesting setting that he talks about that and it is a setting that you would think is quite ripe for for mm. crime stories, but um, there don't seem to be that many books set. There. No, it's got an unusual, an unusually bare number of books, isn't it? Yeah, which is strange. But um, we, yeah, we talked to him about that. He, he's also got another series set in America, which is a slightly supernatural take on crime as well, um, and talk about his process and everything as well. And in addition to that, he's uh, one of the founding. Mem- founding board members of Bloody Scotland as well, which yeah. is Scotland's premier crime writing festival, at which, if you come along this year, which is next week, at, as soon. this episode goes out, you have the chance to see both myself and Tarek appearing at the festival. I mean, if that's not a draw, Marco, if that's not going to get the listeners in their in their camper vans driving up to Scotland, I don't know what will. <laughs> um I will, in fact, be interviewing Tarek and some other authors on stage, and I'll be doing my best to make him look like a fool. <laughs> it won't take very much. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, we'll put a link in the podcast description if you are interested in coming along to Bloody Scotland, not just to see us, but obviously that that's the main draw. That's a, that was main draw. There's another few 
a few big names yeah, there as well. Yeah, some, some other authors, Ian Rank and people like that. I don't know. Never heard of them. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll get straight on with the podcast after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember... Every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? I, I, if I'm really honest, I had no idea what a writer was other than and when I was younger, one of the things I did was read a lot. So I never thought about writing. I just thought about reading. I used to read incessantly. I'd, I, I loved it when I was a kid. It was escapism. And, and, Part of the answer to that question is I got into writing by accident because there's, there's a story. My grandmother uh, used to live, my father, well, he's no longer with us, come from a town called Fraserburgh, which is up in the northeast shoulder of uh, Scotland. And uh, when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, from the age of about nothing to the age of about 16, that's all we ever went on holiday, Fraserburgh. It's not. It's an okay town, but I, I swear to God, see when you're a kid, there's a limit. There's, <laughs> there's a, it's a lovely place with the smell of fish, the fact you're doing the same thing every year. But anyhow, my, my gran was a big fan of books. And I used to love the Hardy Boys series. Oh, yeah. Like loads uh-huh, of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll also admit to the fact I also liked the Nancy Drew series, which <laughs> you're not meant to admit to. But Hardy Boys, I used to read, and I'd read everything. And then one day I was lying in bed in uh, my, my gran's house because it was the... She had two bedrooms. There's six in our family, two in her. So eight of us in a two-bedroom flat. It was just oh, wow. made for a great holiday. So I used to lie in her bed. And one Saturday morning, she said she was going to the library and being a lazy git. I said, could you get me a new book like or some books? And she said, fine. But she, when she went to the library, she came back. And for reasons that she never explained, she didn't come back with Hardy Boys. She came back with James Herbert's The Fog. Have you ever read it? <laughs> no, I've not read it. <laughs> I've not read it. I know about it, though, but yeah. 
Hey, it's a horror <laughs> book, right? And it, it's a mist that comes out of crack in the ground in South England. And when it washes over, people they go mad and start chopping each other bits off and killing you. And it's <laughs> Quite ridiculous. A step up. What? I mean, honestly, God, what happened at midnight two days before the fog? And suddenly it's like, oh my God. And when I read that, I just thought, I didn't know you were allowed to even write this. I mean, seriously, you're reading things about, like, he's just chopped his penis off. Like, really? Are you allowed to do that in a book? <laughs> and that that got me right into a different set of books. I mean, I went and got The Rats by James Herbert. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, I got into Stephen King. And that's when I thought about writing. Up until that point, no, I'd always just read and read and read. But at that point... It was that opening of a door to another world, which is, well, here's the kids' books, and suddenly there's these adult yeah. books. And that, that's what got me going at the time. That's how I, that's that's what kind of sparked it at the beginning. And and the first kind of serious attempt that you had at actually writing a book, am I right in saying it was your holding Crete? Oh, God, it was so bad. Um, <laughs> as books go, it's probably the most awful uh, homage to Stephen King that's ever been written. <laughs> uh, I had this idea. I was on a, a Jeep like there was eight of us on holiday and we'd hired this Jeep. So I think we had seven or eight on a Jeep. We shouldn't have, but we did. And we were up in the north. And that, to be fair, back, this is back in the 80s. So it wasn't as busy tourist-wise as it is now. And we'd heard about this beach cafe miles from anywhere. And as we're cro- we got lost, and as we're crossing what is basically desert, there's this guy with a backpack on. And he's he's wandering his way through whatever. And I just started to think, what the heck's he doing? Like, it's too far to walk. It's too hot. Why is he here? What's he about? And when I got to the cafe, I asked for, you know, the little notepads that waiters use, the wee tiny ones they yeah, used yeah. to use? Yeah, yeah. I asked for one of those and wrote, I only had about 10 pages, wrote this book called The Drifter. Started writing it, then went back to the, the place where we were staying, went down to the local news agent, got a couple of jotters, because it's the only thing they had, wrote in that. Then I got home and I got a pad of paper. And eventually I wrote this book, 80 odd thousand words called The Drifter. And it's truly dreadful. <laughs> But however, I say that with the view that one day, when I'm really famous, it will be one of those moments where they go, have you got anything in the cupboard that you might want to look at? And I'll go, do you know what? I wrote this when I was 19 years old. (laughs) Have a look at that. That was my first serious attempt at doing so. I didn't try and get it published. I actually just wrote it for the sake of saying, right, I want to do something. And funnily enough, the fact I finished it just kind of blew me away. So that was my very first attempt at a book. And then after that, um, what what was the thing? Did you go into short stories or try another novel? Two things, two routes into writing that took me. One is um, I kind of wrote, I had another couple of attempts at books, uh, and both of them were, from, I'm, I, I was serious with it, but it was more my escapism. It was my way of escaping. So I just love sitting down and losing myself. It's exactly what I like doing now. But a couple of things kind of got me on the journey to the books, one of them was, funnily enough, in 1999, 2000, uh, I used to work in the brewery trade. I was 15 years working for Tenants Brewery in Scotland. And I got a chance to go with three other colleagues to set up a business in London uh, and float it on the stock exchange. Now, that sounds really exotic, right? Because <laughs> the plan was that we'd have you know, a yacht in the Caribbean, a house in America. <laughs> and those things exist. They're just not owned by me. They were just... <laughs> And, and and we did that job. And when I was doing that job, one of the problems I had is the kids were four and six years old when I did it. And I had to fly from Glasgow every Monday morning and fly home on a Friday night. So to keep the kids happy, I used to write short stories for them based on a set of characters called the Doms, D-O-M. 
and there's a story. The reason I called the Doms is because I used to, I still do like OMD the band. Mm-hmm. So I just rearranged their initials and come <laughs> up with this bunch of characters which have got heffalumps and weasel snakes and all sorts of nonsense in them. But I wrote one a day oh, for about a year. So I must have written Monday to Friday at night when I was in wow. the hotel. I would just write and then what I'd do is send them to my wife and she would read them to the kids every night. And that kind of discipline me. It sounds easier than it is in some ways because it's kids' books, but I kind of wanted it to read properly when it was read to them. Mm-hmm. So because I did that, as, as things unfolded after that period, I came back up to Scotland. I tried a couple more times, didn't really work out. And then the the big breakthrough for me was I used to be the marketing director at STV at the TV station. And uh, I was on a contract. So it was a contract I brought in. and had a chance to stay on or quit. And I was running my own business at the time, still am, but I was running a consultancy business. And I said to my wife, I'm going to give it one more go. Just, mm-hmm. I've got about half a dozen at least books. I've got endless short stories. I'd entered short story competitions by then. I'd, oh, oh. I'd got to, um, I'd got to kind of like I hadn't won anything, but I got mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I sat down. I had one idea for a book, not even an idea. I had one line, which was falling is the last thing I ever wanted to do. I, and I started writing, and I spent about three months that summer writing, but a month editing and sent it to four publishers. And amazingly, one of them came back, liked what they'd seen, and I'd sent three chapters and a synopsis. They said, can you send the rest? So I said, yeah, sure. I'm so excited, it's ridiculous. Like I, 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 would, have, I would have went through myself, there were an Edinburgh-based <laughs> uh, publisher called Fledgling. But I sent through this email, and Xander, who, God rest his soul, is no longer with us, Xander said, come on through for a coffee and we'll have a chat about this. I thought, oh my God, right, really? Right, a publisher? So I go through to Edinburgh. I'm sitting with him in his house and he says, okay, Gordon, he says, love the first three chapters. The rest, <laughs> fairly crap. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what? And, and he's such a nice person. He was, he was, he was, You've really called all the way through to hear this. And I thought, what? Why have I, and he goes, I don't understand it. He said, the first three worked really well. I don't understand what happened. I goes, near that. And then I, I, I said, just out of curiosity, I had a pile of paper printed out and I pulled it across to have a look at it. Do you know what I'd done? Because I was so excited, a publisher said they were going to publish something. I'd actually sent him a file from about a month earlier that was unedited, full of mistakes, typos, plot holes, the whole works. It was more or less this pile of nonsense that he'd received. So I said, I said honestly, I can do better. I can really do better. <laughs> And he took it and he published it. And I was just amazed that he published it. But I almost blew it by just sending the email too quickly. I mean, that's, yeah, that is quite lucky, isn't it, in a way? Because oh. a lot of people, if you, they, you know, you wouldn't even hear back, perhaps, or they just give you a rejection and that would be it. And you wouldn't have that second chance. So, yeah. Most publishers, you know yourself, you get that standard letter or you get something back. And if you sent a pile of nonsense, and and I was fairly sure, I, would, I knew it wasn't nonsense. I, I'd actually spent a bit of time on it. I knew I, it, it needed work on it. Mm-hmm. And I talked to other people. But to be told it was a pile of, <laughs> it's like, yeah. really? Oh, my God, that's a bit crazy. Why am I in Edinburgh if that's the case? But it's, it was my <laughs> fault. And then he took it, and that was the amazing thing. And then when I sent him the fresher version, he was a lot happier. And so so did you, you, did you skip over the whole agent part? Did you bother trying for agents, or did you go straight to publishers? I... I was a bit naive, right? So 
I in 2007 I went to um, the Edinburgh Book Festival and I, I I wish I could remember the name of the author that was on stage, but basically it was one of those ones where they had an author on saying how to get your first book published. It was one of those sessions. And it, it's criminal that I can't remember who it is. In fact, probably I could go on the internet and find it. I should really do that. I, and the, the, the woman that was talking had three bits of advice, right? And, and they all kind of stuck with me. The first one was, she said, how many people in here have tried to get a book published? And there's loads of hands go up, like just about everybody in the room. And how many of you have been trying to get the same book published for about a year? Loads of hands go back up, right? How many in here have been trying to get the same book published for two years, right? Same book, and there's still quite a few hands went up. Three years, still a few hands. And she said something which is, look, if you've been at it that long, chances are that's not the book that's going to do it. You should put it to one side and write something else. I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, but if it doesn't work, you change what you're doing. And that, that to me, I'd been trying to, to do something, I hadn't got anywhere. And that's what kind of spurred me on to do it was, right, let's spin everything and start and do it again. The second thing she said is, they asked about an agent and they asked about a publisher. And her answer to that question was quite simple. She said, whatever you can get. She goes, I'd love to say, yes, an agent would be brilliant. If you get a really good agent, they'll find you a really good publisher, they'll get you a really good deal. She goes, but at the same time, and things were changing, late 2000, self-publishing was just starting to be mm-hmm. a thing you could do. Vanity publishing was starting to get pushed into one side. The internet was obviously taking over, and she goes, there's more opportunities than you think not going to an agent. She said, the problem you're going to have is they'll just be, you'll go into a slush pile if you go into it. So one of the things she did say was, do your research on the publisher, which is what I did before I sent it. I knew they published crime books. I knew what kind of, I, I knew what they did. And that was part of the trick. And from an agent point of view, I tried a few agents, but to be honest with you, it was just a tougher gig. I don't know why. I, most other people I've met somewhere along the line have bumped into an agent, got an agent and gone from there. But I, and nowadays, I don't think there's any right or wrong way of doing it, especially given self-publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of your actual writing style, has it changed over the years? And are you someone that, will plan something out in detail before you start writing or do you like to pants it and see where it goes? I'm a big pantser. Terrible. Uh, my first book, the first book I ever wrote, that book I wrote was called Falling. I started in page one and finished in page 285. I, I had no plan, no nothing. And the only thing I stuck with is, have you ever read Stephen King's book on writing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Okay, so I keep talking about rules, but the three rules I took out of Stephen King was, one is uh, write about what you enjoy, not necessarily what you know, because it's fine to write what you know, but actually, if you write what you enjoy, you'll, you'll, you'll get right into it. The second thing he said is write. I know it sounds really stupid, but he says you go from that mental state of I'm going to write a book to I am writing a book. And if you tell people, they then ask you, what are you doing? I'm writing a book. How's it going? It puts pressure on you. But the third rule, which is important for me, was he sets a target every day. It used mm-hmm. to be 2,000 words a day. Mm-hmm. And that's still my target. When I'm writing a book, I set a target of 2,000 words a day. And because I set myself a target of that, I didn't actually do any planning. What I would do is write 2,000 words and stop. Then I'd go and do the next 2,000. Then I'd do the next 2,000. And that's how I wrote about the first three or four books. I just would then go back and fix it. It has changed slightly. The the new book, Six Wounds and 31 Bones, the books I've written under the name Morgan Cry, 
I had a slight change in the way I did it. Not much, but what I've started to do is I kind of mentally map out a bit of the book. I don't really map out where it's going, how it's finishing. I just mentally map it out. I still do my 2,000 words, but then what I'll do is I'll actually walk out the house or if I'm on a park bench, I'll go, wherever it is, I'll go for a walk. And I try and figure what would happen next. So I tend to treat it like, remember the old Flash Gordon stuff you used to get in the cinema? You, you, you two are too young for this. <laughs> we used to go to the cinema. When I was five years old, you went to the cinema. I, I'm not that old, but they used to show the 1930s and 40s cliffhangers that were still showing them. So Saturday morning, nine o'clock, your mum and dad, well, mum and dad didn't even care, we walked down. Nine o'clock, you went to the cinema, you get out at 12, and they'd have everything from cartoons to a movie to the rest. But they always had, and my memory is Flash Gordon, where at the end of every Flash Gordon, he either died or something major happened. And then the next week, he miraculously survived, and that was the next episode. And I started to treat the 2000 words like that. I would get to the end of it and say, okay, so what happens next? And I won't go back to it till I've come up with just the nub of where it can go next. Yeah. Then I'll get to the end of 2000 words and do the same thing. So I kind of write it like a Flash Gordon episode. But does does that lead to any issues in terms of like do you ever do you always have something else to write that next 2000 words or do you have periods where you're like I'm not sure where this is going to go and does that do you pause then to try and work out what's going to happen? No, I'm not I never really got a block. I always write something. I I kind of work in the basis even if what I'm writing I think is complete rubbish. I'll still try and get it done because I can always go and fix it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I need to write my way through. I, I, I always I always say it's like, you know, walk across a landscape. Sometimes you hit a bit of quicksand. It slows you down and you've got to wade your way through it and you've got to get through the other side and suddenly you get back on a nice bit of walking track and you're fine. I sometimes find, I, in fact, sometimes a lot, I have to go through that bit. That's the bit where I suddenly think I can't write. That's the mm-hmm. bit where I suddenly go eh, imposter syndrome. Like, you know, you're writing stuff and you think, this is rubbish. But if I don't go through that, I won't go back to it. So yeah. I just have to literally, it's, it feels like hard work, but it's it's like a lot of stuff when you're doing a job, you just have to get through that bit because you can edit stuff. You can't edit a blank page. You know yeah. that. You, yeah. So therefore, that, that's how I tend to do it. Occasionally, what I'll do is Mather, as, as my mate from Manchester says, Mather the hell out my wife because she'll be out for a walk with me. And all I'll do is say, right, if he did this and they did that, <laughs> she went there and he went there. And after about half an hour, Leslie eventually, I said, I'm off for a coffee. Half an hour. But I don't need her to say anything. I just need to say it out loud. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I find sometimes that's the best ideas I have, I think out loud. So then when you when you start a, a new book, do you, do you have an idea of, of what it's going to be about in general? Like, Are you going to be like, this is going to be a crime novel with these characters? Or, or is it literally a case of, 2,000 words, I have no idea what the idea is or where it's going at all, or do you have some kind of germ of a story? Yeah, when I started, each of the books I've started, I've, they've been born of something. Each one's been born of an idea. But they, I've got a crime series, a thriller series in America, and now the Spanish series. They were born of, of something that happened to me in each case. But that's about it, when okay. the idea. So if I take the... Uh, like I've got a thriller series set in America where a protagonist called Craig McIntyre Right, there's four of them, and it's a bit preternatural, a bit super, tiny little bit supernatural. In that Craig has got through being in the army and in the experiment an ability to bring out the worst in people remotely. If he's sitting in a room and the two of you are in the room together with you, and you've got history, 
he can if if he gets agitated and manifests itself in the two of you getting angry at each other, really angry, like you could end up killing each other. So he he, he doesn't know how he does it. And the whole start of that book's about the fact that there's an American agency who love him for the fact he's the perfect uh, weapon in terms of assassination. You know, get two old leaders in a room, put him in, let things kick off. Who's going to blame who? And it's more or less a, he's on the run a lot. That story actually came out of, that whole thing came out of the fact I was in a pub in the south side of Glasgow with a mate of mine on a Friday night, dead quiet. We're standing at the bar. There's two guys on the right-hand side who were very drunk and one guy reading a book. And the two guys that were really drunk fell out with each other. Turns out they were brothers and started to try and oh, kick the hell out of each other. But it's that drunk fighting where they've got absolutely no coordination. Yeah. <laughs> and, and me and my mate sat at the bar and watched them as they more or less trashed the pub. Like, tables went over, chairs went over, and eventually the police turned up about 10 minutes later, grabbed them and took them away. The thing I most remember is the guy reading the book never looked up once. Right? <laughs> Every time I looked over, he was like staring into this book, and I thought he was just scared. Well, I don't want to make eye contact. If I pretend yeah. it's not happening, it'll be fine. But later on, walking home, I thought, what if he caused that? What if, the, what if that's how bad his life is, is that happens all the time to him? It's it's a bit it's a bit like uh, a, if you've is, have you ever read the Dark Tea Time of Soul the uh, Douglas Adams Dark Gently oh, no, books no, no, no. Dark Gently Solistic Detective Agency yeah. in the first book they've got a truck driver that everywhere he goes it rains all the time right he thinks oh, the only weather in the world is rain right and <laughs> and he's got names for a hundred different types of rain right and actually what he is I think he's a Norse rain god and he just doesn't know it. Right, and that's Doc Gently's way. This poor guy goes right. Well, that's what I thought Craig McIntyre's life was like. How bad would it be? And that's what gave the German the idea for the book. And from there, it was just taking that idea. And then each time I sat down, it's right. Okay, where does that take me? And and you've got these books that are set in different, like you see, you've got different series set in different countries. Yeah. Does that, um, you know, how much research do you do you put into that? And is it fun jumping around these different settings? It's I've kind of been sequential to some degree because the first three out were um, crime books, Falling, 59 Minutes and Falling 2, which only came out in the States. Then I jumped to thrillers. And then I had a period I didn't know where I was going. I, 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 I kind of tried a couple of things that didn't really work. I, I tend to write linear. When I'm on a book, I tend to be writing that book and whatever the next book is, although that's, that's just not been the case in lockdown. That changed in lockdown. The, the, what I tend to find is that I get a bit confused. At the moment, I've got a new publishing deal which starts in September with a different publisher. And one book set in Glasgow in the 80s, in London, Glasgow 80s, London 90s is one book. And the other book set in the Glasgow's in the 1970s. And I've been editing it while I've been promoting the book set in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got immensely confused when I've been doing podcasts or anything to try and remember is this an 80s crime book or is this a Spanish crime book and getting the names mixed up? That, that's because I wrote those, the two new books I wrote during lockdown because the publication of Six Wounds and 31 Bones, the two books I've got with Polygon, were delayed because of COVID. Yeah. So rather, rather than sitting doing nothing, I just kept going and I couldn't do any more of those because I don't know where the deal is, so I come up with something new. That That's the first time I've genuinely gone on and said, what book is it I'm talking about? <laughs> And I don't know about you, but I, I have a problem. If someone says to me, I read a book now, like because this is my ninth book, yep. I now have that classic case I never thought I'd get to. They say, oh, I read Falling 2. And do you remember when such and such happened? I went, no. 
<laughs> I know, I know, absolutely. Like, really, lads, hang on a minute, let me think about that. So it's it's it, it's kind of changed slightly because I've now got two different deals or two different publishing yeah. deals. Well, well, let's chat about your latest book then, which is Six Wounds. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? So the book is set in the town of El Descaro, which is on the Costa Blanca in Spain. Um, actually, El Descaro is secretly a town called Javier. And the reason I say that is my, my wife and I are lucky enough to own an apartment in the town of Javier on the Costa Blanca. And therefore, when I was thinking about starting a new series, I'd always been interested in the expat community, the Costa del Crime in Spain. And I and actually quite amazed there's not more books on it. Uh, I think the only book I've ever read is J.G. Ballard did a book called Cocaine Nights, which is really good. You've got like Ray Winston did Sexy Beast. You've got this, or the Mallorca Files to a little bit of degree. And I couldn't understand it because there's something short of just under 400,000 Brits in Spain. And there's a whole community out there. And, and I was interested in it for, for a very simple reason. I, I was amazed when we went into bars in Spain what the expat community will talk to you about. Like, who they are, where they've, they've all got a backstory. And, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest with you, some of them are amazing backstories. Like, you know, criminals and there's all sorts out there that just talk to you. I'll give you a good example. One of the reasons the first book, 31 Bones, started is me and my wife are in a bar, sitting talking to a guy next to us. And the guy says to us, I'm currently playing golf on the south coast of England. And we're like, what? He says, I, at this moment, I'm on about the fourth hole. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, there's a four ball goes out, two o'clock every Saturday. I'm the fourth on it. And I said, but you're here. He goes, I know I'm here. He said, but as far as the golf club's concerned, I teed off at two o'clock today. And I'm still a bit confused on this. <laughs> then he said, I also have a whole number of flights booked for the rest of the year. And I said, is that to go and play golf? And he goes, no, no, no. He said, it's because you're only allowed to do so many days in Spain. And now it's changed with Brexit. It's even worse. But if you don't want to be a tax resident, you've got to do less than 183 days or the Spanish authorities pick up on you. So he'd worked out, if I've got proof I played golf every Saturday and whatever it was, yeah, <laughs> and I've got all these flight tickets, if the Spanish authorities ever turn up, I'm going to be able to say, no, I'm not living in Spain, I'm living in Britain. And then he says, why, what do you do? And I couldn't resist it. I said, I work for the tax man. <laughs> <laughs> and for a moment he froze. And I went, no, I don't. I don't, don't work for the tax man at all. But I kept finding all these stories. And some of them are gems. I mean, some of the stuff in the books is real gems. So I had this idea about a, a, a woman, young woman in Britain who'd been working as an insurance claim operative whose mother died in Spain. And she thinks she's flying out to the funeral. And she's been estranged for 20 years. And when she gets out, she finds that her mother, she knew her mother owned a pub in the town of El Descaro. It's called Cebusca, which means the wanted. But it's that sort of pub that if 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 you flew out from, well, if you went into Spain, went to the British areas, had the currency on the ceiling, John Smith's being served, Walker's crisps, mm-hmm. pie beans and chips, Sunday roast. It's that sort of place. Breezebox shell, but there's a whole crew of expats in there who live and breathe that world. And they're not happy with their life. And the Daniela, who flies out, suddenly finds out there was a scam. In the first book, there was a scam going down where they were taking money for property with a view to earning enough money that 
the mother and a group called the expatriates, which is about six really dysfunctional expats, were going to flee the country, get, make my money and go. And she suddenly becomes de facto the mother because the money goes missing. And in the first book, they all think she knows what it is. So it's a bit like it's a bit of a heist book, and at the same time, a bit of a crime book. And it's her learning this new expat criminal life. So there's a gangster in it. There used to be a big gangster in London in the 60s. He's part of it. The whole team is the expatriates are a bit dysfunctional. There's a failed racing driver, failed accountant, failed lawyer, failed models. You can see the theme here, failed <laughs> pop star. But it's kind of based, not specifically, on a lot of people we met out there because a lot of people go out to the sun thinking it's going to be wonderful. And actually, it's a bit of a struggle, A, yeah. to make money, and B, it's a bit of a kick in the face when you have to come home if you haven't done anything. Because you come back from Spain, the first thing that people will say when you get back here is, why in the heck did you leave sunshine, cocktails, all the rest of it? So you find a lot of that expat community, are, there's a whole uh, subculture that goes on amongst it. And that's what the first, so the first book was decidedly a bit of a heist movie. It's, it's set in the area. And when I came to write the second book, it's a sequel. So when I sat down to do Six Wounds, I started off with, at the beginning of the book, there's a, a pub raid. Um, it it kind of comes from an idea. I used to work at a, a hotel in Loch Lomond when I was about 18 or 19. And one of the things that used to happen, because we got really, really, really bored, was that there was another two hotels north and south of us, and we all had mascots. One of them had a huge antler, you know, head, we had like a, a trophy and one of the guys down, they had this big dog thing. And what we tried to do is steal them so that we all, at any one time, could you have all three in the pub, right? And this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, like you're up and down at 12 at night trying to steal an antler's head from a pub while it's busy, right? I thought about that and I actually put that into the book. And basically one pub, not Sabuska, there's another pub called DB's, raid one night to steal the mascot. And when they leave, there's a dead body. And, and that's not a giveaway. And, and what I realized, and it's the strangest thing, is it then becomes Daniela has to figure who did it because all the evidence points to her. So she's now trying to handle running this bar in Spain with the dysfunctional people who kind of want rid of her. The, the Guardia Civil, who are on top of it, there's a Capitan who wants her and fancies her for it. She has to figure a way of solving this. And actually, by accident, I've written my first murder mystery. Nice. <laughs> and is, are these books then have you found because as you say there's there's a big community there uh, and there aren't that many stories written about it i mean have you found that in terms of sales are they popular in in spain with the expats I, i've not got a deal in spain in spanish but when it, the the british deal is i could i've i've taken books out they go mm -hmm. really really quickly People kind of like reading about it for two reasons. One is, the first question you always get asked is, is anyone I know in it? Because, mm -hmm. yeah. right? like, you know, they'll point, because I've had people pick out their bar from it on the main basis of one single little mention. Or I've got one of the bar owners, her name's in it, and it's not even to do with a bar, and she's convinced it's her, right? <laughs> and, and because everybody knows someone who knows someone out there that's a bit dodgy, if I'm honest, that, that kind of, everybody knows the story. They all want to read it, but they read it on the basis, it's not me, not me, governor. I'm yeah, not one of those, right. yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not one of these people. Um, and there aren't, where we are, there aren't actually that many Brit bars. It's not as bad as some of the areas where there's a lot of the British bars. There's only a few of them. And even the ones that are, are heavily, the Spanish use them a lot. But the, 
there's a lot of enjoyment out of that sort of uh, cost of del crime thing. There, there's still there's an element. I, I just as I said earlier, I'm slightly surprised there's not been more written about it, just because it's such a relatable thing for the UK and it got yeah. published in the states as well, because it's sunshine and cheap beer and yes, it's wonderful. But that undercurrent, there's a threat undercurrent, and that that uh, cost of del crime still hangs around the Spanish coast for a very good reason. I mean, I, I just recently wrote an article on why it started and where it came from, and it's still there, not for the same reasons, but there's still quite a bit of it out there. Yeah. And that, yeah, I, he, on you go, sorry. No, no, just say that I didn't really actually realise that, I was reading that, that this morning, actually, I didn't realise that the kind of cost of crime was, uh, it was it was created because it was a kind of a way for folk to escape extradition and they could go and live there and relax. So what happened in the late 70s, we did an agreement with Spain for, I can't remember how long, which was the extradition treaty. So effectively, same as we've got it with a lot of other countries, it lapsed. We couldn't agree with the Spanish. So it lapsed only for a short period, about seven years, I think it lapsed. But in that period, it was not then possible to extradite someone from Spain for a crime committed in Britain. So a lot of the British criminals in the late 70s and 80s thought, woo-hoo, ha-ha. <laughs> like, so, and you should read the list of who went out. I, I wrote it in the article. It's amazing who actually went out and, and, and was out and was out there. And it became a haven. I mean, where, where is, you know, down, especially in Costa del Sol, uh, Costa del Sol the, the, it replaced a lot of the, the glitterati. You know, a lot of the ones that had been out there early with the big money, the criminals moved in because they had cash and they couldn't come back. And even when they fixed it, so they fixed it at 85, I think, when they fixed it and, and brought in the new extradition treaty, which was about 2000 odd, in Spanish law, you can't be uh, done for something that previously... So you can't be done under an old law for something that's new. So the guys that were out there were able to still stay with relative impunity for a long period of time. And that's where that whole Costa del Crime thing comes from is... But you kind of know what the problem is. It's all fine and well to say you're going to live your next 20 years sitting in the sun drinking. But actually, you you don't want to do that. Well, you can, but you can't get back. You can't get back to Britain. And that's... That's what frustrated them the most. And that's the same in the book I'm in. There's a lot of them. It's not because they can't go back. It's if they do go back, you're going to have to answer all these questions. You know, why have you done nothing with your life? You know, what, what have you actually got up to? And therefore, what they're desperately trying to do in the books is say, how can I earn it? Whether it's illegal or illegally, how can I get myself to a position where I can do what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And obviously, those books are under the name Morgan Cry, but you, you, your books coming out this year are under uh, your name, Gordon J. Brown. When we've spoken to people before about, um, you know, names and pseudonyms and things like that, there's often this idea that you don't want to be changing around like that because your audience won't go with you. I mean, how? what, what do you think about that? So I've got a problem in my name. So <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. I was bloody minded as hell at the beginning. I was going to be Gordon Brown and I just stuck with it. And in hindsight, it might have been better to start off as, I don't know, Fred Lover. I don't know. It might have been better to start as something else, but I stuck with it. And actually through thick and thin, I did eight, seven books with it. When I got to this one, I was talking to Polygon, who are the publishers, and I was saying, this is no connection whatsoever to anything I've done before. It's a completely new series. And I floated the idea of, what if we change the name? Because otherwise, what happens is, you put Gordon Brown in Google, or Amazon, or anywhere, and you get the ex-Prime Minister. That's just what you get. So they they said it was a good idea, because it was a complete fresh series, fresh set of characters set in a different country, 
So actually, the name is a bit odd in that uh, Morgan is my dad's name. Um, it was my grandmother's maiden name, and she didn't want to lose it, so she gave it to my father. My father had four sons. There's four. I've got three brothers. I, I didn't. He didn't want to give it to me. He didn't want to give it to my next brother. The next brother down, he gave it as a middle name, and eventually the fourth brother, he gave it as a first name. So we had Morgan Brown, my dad, Morgan Brown, the youngest, and Alan, who's got his middle name Morgan. At school, there was three Alan Browns, and the teacher called them all by their middle name. So he was. So we had three Morgan Browns in the house. And, and, and I thought, Morgan, and I quite like try. I just, that was more a crimey thing. But I don't know if you've seen, uh, what's the uh, Elton John pick, biopic, Rocket Man? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know the bit in the back of the van when he says to the drummer, I'm going to change my name? And he tells him it's Elton John, and the drummer goes, but that's my name? Yeah. <laughs> well, in Morgan, I had to phone my youngest brother up and say, look, before I agree in this, is it okay if I use your name? And that, that's the reason we did it for Morgan Cry. And, and in fairness, the reason I've gone back to my own name is that that Morgan Cry will just stick with the Spanish series right. if there's more there. Yeah. It, that's the way we'll do it. And Gordon Brown, I've gone with Gordon J. Brown only because that's been my website for ages. And actually now I've had it that long. When you put it in the search engine, you get me, you don't get Gordon Brown. Mm-hmm. Do you have to make like a conscious effort to, to tell people Morgan Cry is you or, or, or are you quite keen to kind of start from scratch and see what happens with it? I kind of spend my life going, hi, my name is Morgan Cry, real name Gordon Brown. Hi, I'm Gordon Brown. All right, it's Morgan Cry. <laughs> I, I, I haven't really learned to live with it. You know, some people have got a pseudonym that they, they've just, you know, if you talk to Lee Child, it's yeah. not his name, but yeah. he is, yeah? I, I have this flipping back and forward thing. It's partly driven because because I'm involved with Bloody Scotland. Um, you, you know, my involvement with Bloody Scotland means I often walk on stage in front of a crowd and have to introduce myself and I now have a split personality because <laughs> my promotionally polygon, I'll say, say a good morning cry. When you walk on stage, say what? And I go, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm on the board as Gordon Brown. So actually I do find that a bit of a struggle. So I tend to promote myself heavily as Morgan cry. That's just makes sense. Yeah. 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 But in appearances, I get interviewed at I write, uh, Teresa Talbot spent the whole time flipping between names. Morgan Gordon. In fact, the worst thing is, she at one point she I, w- I was on with Charlie Higson and she was talking to Charlie and then she says, "Morgan, what do you think of that?" And I just sat there and then she said, "Oh, that's me, right? Hi, Teresa. <laughs> oh, I forgot I saw that's me. Hi, Teresa." So it is tough. I, I would say ideally I wouldn't have done it, but in those books, for so the Spanish books, it absolutely made sense because I think yeah. it would have just been an uphill battle with the yeah. name. Yeah. And you're you mentioned it there. You're uh, on the board at Bloody Scotland, which is one of the UK's major crime writing festivals. Um, how, how did you get involved in that? God, how did, I was there right at the beginning. Um, 2010, about 2010, I joined the CWA, Crime Writers Association, and I went along to a lunch at the Millennium Hotel in Glasgow in George Square, and uh, there was two authors there, Alex Gray and Lynn Anderson. And uh, Alex and Lynn had been down at um, uh, Harrogate. And I think one night, they'd done this a few times, but one night I think they found themselves with, I think it was Ian Rankin, Stuart McBride, Chris Brookmeyer, Lynn, Carol Ramsey. There was a whole bunch of Scots, last people standing at the bar, right? All Scottish. And the question was raised by them is, why is there not a Scottish festival? Because there was nothing. Why is there no celebration of Scottish crime writing? And we're talking about this at lunch, um, I was saying I used to be tangentially involved with some festivals. I, I, I was a sponsor 
and tenants uh, sponsor tea in the park. I never get involved with tea in the park other than as a sponsor. But I, I remember uttering the words, well, how difficult could it be to put one on, right? <laughs> and literally me and Lynn met in Princess Square about two weeks later to talk, what would you do? And then it kind of went from there. You know, there was a team put together, Craig Robertson, Jenny Brown. There was, uh, there was a whole bunch of people brought on board. But that's how it started. It started almost as a debate about why why has there not been a celebration of Scottish crime writing? You know, even things like Willie McIlvanny had almost been forgotten mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, it, he came back. It was great. I met him before we even started Bloody Scotland. And when you looked at people like Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, you go back to Josephine Tay, you even go back to Buckin, you looked at the whole Scottish scene and then where it came from after that, Denise Miner, Chris Brookmeyer and the rest of it, there was a real crying need to say we need something to celebrate Scottish crime writing. And also, to be fair, to encourage new crime writing. That, 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 that was the key for us. It's, it's fine 10 years ago starting it, but you want all the new authors 10 years ago to be the headliners in 10 years yeah. from now. And you need to give them oxygen. I mean, what is it about um, Scotland that, that, you know, it does have a very rich heritage of crime writers. Um, it seems to me more so than than, than other countries, which maybe have a more diverse uh, bunch of authors. I mean, yeah, why, why crime writing in Scotland? I've heard so many different answers. I, my kind of take on it is kind of threefold. One is that, that there's an element of dark humour in Scotland, you know, black humour in Scotland is very, it's prevalent. Even in the worst situations, gallows humour will show it through, right? And, and that sits very well with writing a crime book because mm-hmm. that's, if you write a really depressing crime book with no humour in it whatsoever, it just doesn't work. But if you read any of the major Scottish crime authors, there's humour laced all the way through. And that Scottish humour lifts, for me, lifts the book. It, it, the second thing is, I think, is it, it's a bit like the Scots talking like me. I just talk too much. But from a Scottish point of view, that telling a tale is a big thing. You know, it's and crime is such a good thing, it's such a good platform because it, it's got every aspect of humanity in it. And it does it, you know, everything in life, if you take crime, you'll get you will walk into every pub, every door, every person, it affects everybody. And I think that those two things together lead towards, you know, a sort of na- I was going to say narrative. It's not really a narrative, it, it it's more a kind of culture a platform that you can build on but I think importantly as well don't underestimate the likes of what Willie McIlvanny did with the Laidlaw trilogy the influence he had on Ian Rankin or Val McDermott the fact that they've been so supportive of other writers has led to the fact that you get people following on from them they see what they do and it's success breeds success that, yeah. that's one of the key things and as a result I think if you go down to London publishers you probably know this they will look to Scotland to say right where's the next crime writer coming from it's, it's almost like an automatic. There must be more of them up there. And, and most of the list, I think most publishers will have a Scottish crime writer on their books. Most, I can't think many that won't if, yeah. in that genre. And I think also the fact that, I think Bloody Scotland's played a small part in it, but I think the fact is there's been an explosion in the last 10 years. If you think about how many crime festivals have popped up and therefore how many opportunities for new writers to, to get out there. And that sort of tartan noir name yeah. that floats around, there's people who hate it and people like it, but it's actually quite nice having a brand around something. Yeah. Because it gives a sense of identity. You know, you're part of that movement, you know, and whether that whether you agree with that phrase or not, it also gives it an identity. Scandi kind of nicked it for a while. Scandi Noir became a thing 
and they did the same thing. You know, if you go back to, 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 to the start of that and you look how many Scandinavian authors, the other thing from their point of view is, I know when you talk to them, that's a, it's a bit of an overreach given you've got Finland and Norway and Sweden yeah. and Denmark and yeah. the Faroe Isles <laughs> and Iceland. It's kind of like, like, lads, we all live in different countries. But <laughs> if it works, it works. And I think yeah. that helps as well. And and the, the I mean the festival itself has grown each year. You know, it started back in 2010, 2012, and it's 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 grown massive. I mean, last year you had your your idol Stephen King was zooming yeah. in to give a talk last year. I mean, it must be really satisfying to see the growth of it and to see the public responding to it so well. It's amazing. I think two things. Are, one is this is our tenth anniversary this year, so we're launching sixteenth of June. We're announcing the whole um, lineup for this year, and the good news is we're getting back to um, as much live as possible. Mm-hmm. But we still will have digital because digital has actually taught us something. You get an amazingly good uh, global audience mm-hmm. that would never come to Sterling just yeah. because. So it's the, what 15th to 18th of September this year for it. And we're now even doing an extra day. So we're starting on the Thursday right through to the Sunday. Um, so the, it's, compared to where we were, it's just growing and growing and growing. And I think personally, the one thing I like, you know, but crime in the spotlight, which is yeah. the opportunity for new and debut authors to do three minutes in front of a main panel, literally stand up. This is who I am and read a little bit of the book. I'm really proud of that because I came up with that idea of it six years ago because I love my music and I always go to see the support band. Mm-hmm. It's just part of my ritual. Hoping one day to see the support band and be able to do that blagging right. Yeah. I, I, saw, <laughs> yeah. I saw them in kind touch when there were nothing. <laughs> it's the same. Well, this year we'll go through 100 Spotlighter. Wow, since we started amazing. doing that as yeah, an initiative. Yeah. And I just like that on the basis. Some of those authors have gone on. I remember when Graham McCray Burnett did our first year. Right? And I, every time I meet him, I go, see, see what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I gave you a first big break. <laughs> You'll be saying the same to Tarek soon, I'm sure. As well. Tarek, <laughs> Tarek did fantastically. And that's, but you, I think that, that opportunity, I think, is just, it's, it's a small thing. Yeah, but it, but it, it, but it means a lot. And, it's a, and for the person, it's a, it's a massive boost yeah. in a massive audience that they would never be able to get otherwise and it's such a small you know it's, it, for three minutes it's a it's a nothing thing it's an easy thing for festivals to do but but not many places do it and it's it's such a nice it's, it means so much more to the author i think than it probably does to the to the how much it takes up the festival you know well what i'm also love about it is whoever's on stage at the time whether it's ian rankin whoever yeah. it is they're so supportive yeah I, that's yeah. that's what makes it work for me is they'll happily chat about talk to tweet sit and sign with and that sort of level of support when you're a debut and a new author must be a great, you know, everybody gives you the same feedback, which is you walk away feeling that was a good start, you know. Oh, well, totally, yeah. I, I get more out of that because it wasn't just three minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and you also just get to chat to a big name author who you would maybe not get that kind of yeah. FaceTime with otherwise. So yeah, no, it's, it's a fantastic thing. And and, and, it, it, and 100 people is, that, that's that's excellent. That's, that's very exciting. And... Um... Before we go, I was just going to ask, you've said as well that you're a big sci-fi fan. Would you ever want to write a sci-fi story? I used to read tons of sci-fi. I used to love Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell. Um, I, I was like addicted. Asimov, I used to, in fact, Asimov's one of the best crossovers. If anyone ever asked me to write, to read a good uh, crime series, I always tell them to go and read iRobot. Oh, yeah. Because it's such a cleverly constructed way of doing the, well, it's not possible to do this. Here's the rules. You've got to break the yeah. rules. Um, I'm not sure I would. I kind of tried. The first two or three novels were kind of the machine, which was an, an even more appalling novel than The Drifter, was about <laughs> a machine built on the hill that replicated people, and that just doesn't make any sense. So I kind of I had to go, a go at it. I think 
the, the only thing I'm doing is I'm not doing sci-fi. I'm actually taking a little kind of left field turn from my next book. Um, I'm kind of, I've written about the two books. The first book is decidedly the furthest away I've been from crime and thrillers for a while. And that it's really about a, a girl and a teenager is abandoned by a mother who would fall into a life of crime but forms a rock band. And in forming that rock band, she's helped by a character who helps her get out of the mire. And the whole backstory is that character has a connection to the Cold War and her possible relationship with it. So it's kind of got crime in it, but it's taken me in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But that happened during lockdown because I kind of wanted, I thought, right, I've done crime and thrillers, I've done crime and thrillers, crime and thrillers, that's what I've been doing. And not so much sci-fi. I thought, I'm just going to try and change because I had this idea. I, I can't tell. I, it's, it's, it's too long a story, but I found, I, I heard a story about this triple agent in the 1950s and 60s who uh, worked for Poland, Russia, and America. And once he actually got taken back to America, then claimed to be the son of the Romanovs. All right, okay, right? cool. So the whole cool story is that it, my protagonist might just be his daughter, which would make her a princess. Right, okay. But, oh, right, okay, good. But that, that, I found that story and thought, that's just too good to let go. Yeah. I've never heard of that. So that, that, and then next year, I've got a 1973 set during the winter of discontent, not winter of discontent, power cuts, three-day week, all the rest of it. I've got two kids getting involved with uh, the gangs in the south side of Glasgow. And I'll tell you now, that's me and my mate. It's set where me and my mate lived. <laughs> we just never get involved with the stuff that was in it. <laughs> or so you say. So we say. <laughs> Brilliant. What was the last book that you read? Uh, I'm currently reading Quentin Jardin's uh, Skinner's Rules because I'm hosting the uh, Bloody Scotland um, uh, uh, book club this month. So I've just read before that Steph Broadrib's Death in the Sunshine. Nice. Uh, and then, what did I read before that? I can't remember before that. I've got a pile of books sitting next to this, but that's, and next is, I've got to reread Mr. Mercedes by Stephen King because those three books are for the book club. So that's on my TBR pile. Nice. Uh, what about the last film that you watched? Uh, oh, what did I watch last night? <laughs> um, <laughs> we watched some. What did I watch that was really mentally daft and actually turned out to be quite good? I've got to ask my wife. We just sat and watched one of those really daft movies, and I can't remember what it's called. It's going straight out of my head. It's one of those. Ask me another question. I'll see if I can remember what the answer is. <laughs> well, uh, the next one is what's the last TV show that you watched? I'm not sure if that's. Ah, oh, no, no, no. We started watching. We, we, we stumbled on Suits. Do you remember Suits? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Never watched it, right? And, and a bit like we, we tend, to, we go through, we keep getting told, watch this series and binge watch. And like we watched the start of The Wire, didn't like it. Watched the start of various ones, didn't like it. And then watched Ozark, which mm-hmm. we adored. And then Suits were on series four, episode 17, <laughs> down the line. Uh, we did that. And then the other one is the uh, Lincoln Lawyer. <coughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the new one. We just, wa- yeah. just watched the first two on that. So that, we were watching that last night. And then, oh, I'll tell you what we were watching last night, which is real bubble gum for the mind, is we we're watching mid- the new episode of Midsummer Murders. <laughs> nice. I just two hours I sit there and just take your brain out. <laughs> Wheels uh, of Jesus murder weapon. Yeah. Well the, the the very, very last thing we always do is uh quick fire either or and I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start off with Brookmeyer or Rankin. 
how bad's this? <laughs> uh, I'd go Chris. Okay, it's fine. Uh, TV or cinema? Or cinema. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Early Bird. Uh, music or no music when you're writing? Music, like as loud as you can go and trance dance. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't see this on the podcast, but there's a large jukebox behind Gordon just now. So that wasn't a surprise. And the last one, real book or ebook? A real book. Fair enough. And Excellent. I remember the I remember the film. Oh yeah. It's oh, the yeah, yeah. Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, the oh, sequel yeah, to the Hitman's cool. Bodyguard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other night, if you really want to take your brain out, put it to one side in an hour and a half of nonsense. That's show it shows how serious my films are. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks very much to Gordon for coming on to the podcast, and we're really looking forward to catching up with him at Bloody Scotland, as we mentioned at the start, and hope to see some of you there as well. Still trying yeah. to sell those tickets. <laughs> <laughs> you mean no one's? We haven't sold out yet. I think there are a surprisingly large number of people coming to the event that we're doing now, <laughs> which is slightly worrying. But I'm sure, uh, I think there are still tickets available. So um, yeah, do come along if that if that sounds good. And we'll put a link to Gordon's books uh, in the podcast description as always, so you can pick those yep. up. But next week, we're moving on from the world of crime to university campus life. Yeah, it's quite a diff- and not only from from one corner of the globe to another as we jump to Australia. That's right. With, uh, Diana Reed, who um, has been described as the new Sally Rooney, um, mm-hmm. which is that could, could kind of give you the idea of what her books are about. And her debut book is Love and Virtue. It was the highest selling Australian debut fiction in Australian charts, which is very exciting. And it came out back uh, last year. It came out in Australia, but it's just coming on the UK now. Yeah, I mean, she wrote this book. She just sort of decided to try and write a book during lockdown. One of these annoying people that <laughs> hadn't really thought about writing a book. I'll try <laughs> write a book in lockdown, and it's like the best-selling book in Australia. I know, I know. I mean, we all, I, I, I really hate Dan. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> and she, she also was involved in a musical of 1984 as well. Yeah, which is prime a prime property for a musical yeah that's what i've always thought when i read the original <laughs> this could do with yeah. a few songs uh, no but it's it's a really interesting episode so yeah uh, it's really fun please do tune in for that one um and then if you enjoyed this episode as i said at the start if you uh, want to give us a rating or review that would be very much appreciated and of course if anybody wants to get in touch they can always send us a tweet in the twitter machine which is at uk page one or an email uh, which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.